So as you know, we're going through a series entitled Truth. That's simple, truth. Because we realize that in our day, truth is being discarded in order for the lie of the enemy, and there's many of them out there, and to be embraced by everyone. And if you don't believe me, all you need to do is look and see how does this generation treat the Bible, the Word of God. Now we're going to get into just that expression, the Word of God, but this is the Bible. This is what the Bible also calls the Scriptures. Or in Greek, it is hygraphi, which means the writings, literally. It's not the speakings, it is the writings. That's what's written down. This is what we have. And our generation is wanting to attack this. So much is at stake. Let me just give you a few examples with regard to education institutions. Harvard was founded in the year, let me get this, 1636. 1636, that is almost 400 years ago. Wow. Um, their mission statement, wow. So spot on with regard to the gospel that the students would know Christ, walk in that mission, that others would know Christ and truly honor him in a life of worship. Powerful, powerful mission statement. But where is Harvard today? They have completely abandoned the inerrancy of Scripture. Let me just define that word for you if I could. And it very simply means that there is no error in the Bible. Or put another way, it is a belief in the, tra excuse me, the truthfulness and therefore the trustworthiness of all of Scripture. Let me just say that again. It's not just that there's no error in the Bible. We're going to get into this a little bit deeper. But it is that there is, it's a belief in the truthfulness and therefore the trustworthiness. They go hand in glove. The truthfulness and the trustworthiness of all of Scripture. Let me give you another example. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, and by the way, Harvard today, and, and they did, in 2019, they did a survey with their student body. Their student body proved to be 37.9% atheists. If you do a general survey of America, it's, they're between 7 and 12%. Do you see a problem here? Let me give you another example. Gail, um, Yale, this is a little closer to home to me because Abraham Pearson, who founded this, was a distant relative of mine, and a Pearson married a Curtis back in the 19, early 1900s. But this man, he founded Yale in his um, church in New Jersey, northern New Jersey, and it later moved and became Yale. It was originally called Collegiate School, and in 1745 became Yale, and it had a very strong position on the Bible, the Word of God, that it was truly infallible and inerrant. In other words, that it cannot fail, completely trustworthy, and no error, and therefore it was truthful, okay? Where is Yale today? Obviously, they have abandoned that mission statement. They no longer believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Now, let me just tell you, and, and, and let me give you another example, Princeton. Princeton, it was founded in 1726, known as Log College. 
It changed its name to the College of New Jersey in 1746, and that is generally the date in which the charter was signed, and it technically became College of New Jersey, and it was founded in the wake of the First Great Awakening. In 1896, it changed its name to Princeton. Along the way, it abandoned their original belief in the inerrancy of Scripture. Now, this doesn't happen overnight. Let me give you an example in Fuller Theological Seminary. Fuller Theological Seminary was founded in 1947. It believed in the infallibility and in the inerrancy of all Scripture. In 1972, it threw off that belief in inerrancy and it believed only in the infallibility or the trustworthiness of Scripture only in faith and practice. See, the details of Scripture concerning history or historical accuracy, geography, science, even the use of numbers, they did not believe that those facts were necessarily inspired or were accurate. And so they would say that there was error. And the, the general idea today is if science, and we all know that science doesn't say anything, but rather scientists say every, say because scientists look at the data, they interpret the data of science, and then they come to a conclusion. And it's their conclusion based on their interpretation of the data that we read about. Now, you and I both know that scientists have many times been wrong. Many times been wrong. But nevertheless, in our day, there is a compulsion to allow the scientists to state what is apparently fact, and therefore, I have got to look at my Bible, and, they, and people eventually end up saying, all of these schools, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Fuller Theological Seminary, they abandon the idea of inerrancy, and they just simply say, well, the scientists must be right, and my Bible must be wrong. And it's actually arrogant to try and defend and argue for inerrancy. So, don't argue about inerrancy, because if you do, you're arrogant. This is what we are told. And so that's the way, and social media does this all the time, if I can put a, a negative label on you, maybe that will shut you down. And so the challenge is, does, the, does science, or what, what, I mean, what scientists say, obviously, is one thing, but what does the science really say? And when we get Christian scientists in there, many of them are concluding there is something wrong with the way science is done today. And as they, as they look at the, what the, what, at, the, at the data, the science, and they look at scripture, they see a harmony. And they are not obligated to abandon inerrancy. But Fuller Theological Seminary in 1972 did so. And five years later, not only did they, not only did they abandon inerrancy, but they concluded, whether it was stated or not, but by what they began to teach, that it was only infallible concerning salvation, not in practice, necessarily. Modern, or so-called modern scholarship, sees contradictions. And so, today what I'd like to do 
is take just a moment, and by the way, turn to Genesis chapter 3, because this is not new in our day. But is it arrogant to be able to, to desire to defend the trustworthiness and the truthfulness of Scripture? I'm going to suggest to you it absolutely is not. As a matter of fact, I would say that as we look through the Scriptures, if we conclude in the inerrancy of Scripture that Scripture truly is without error, would you not think that it is arrogant for scientists taking the data, coming to a conclusion, and saying, see, the Bible is wrong? Don't you think that would be arrogant? Regardless, my desire is not to, to throw around name-calling. Let's just look at the Bible. And there's so much that we could look at. For example, just basically the command, do not kill, and yet God tells the judges, if someone commits first-degree murder, he shall die. Well, isn't that a contradiction? And I would venture to say, no, it's only a contradiction when you begin to, or, or when you fail to understand the context of do not kill. And so obviously, even Jesus himself gave commands like, do not divorce. And anyone who divorces and remarries commits adultery. And yet in Matthew 19, he says, and he clarifies in that portion of scripture, anyone who does it except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And so he qualifies it. We have to be careful that whenever something is stated, God is not obligated to give all of the details and the exceptions because that is, that's the limitation of any law. If you look at the laws in America, do you not understand why they keep qualifying these laws? Because we, we realize that, that laws, as stated, they need this clarification to apply to other circumstances. The problem, though, is why are we doing that? And that's the debate. But the truth is law is limited. That's why when we come to the New Testament, we are, we are embracing principles and not just law because principles guide us. And the Spirit of God then shows us how those principles are to be walked out in specific situations in every situation we face each day. So let's, let's just look at this. I want us to turn to Genesis 3. I want us to see the significance first of what we're talking about and what happens you know, obviously we've seen some examples, but what happens when we move away from this idea of inerrancy, when we say that the Bible does contain contradictions, that the Bible, I mean, obviously it, it's divine in some sense, but it's human in another. And so people would say, therefore, being human and humans err, then the Bible, it, it's okay for the Bible to have error. Is it really? Let me read to you. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, and I want you to underline that, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Church, answer that question before we move on. Is that what God said? You cannot eat from any tree in the garden? Of course he did not. But he's, he's trying to ask a question to undermine what God actually said. 
Eve, she, she catches this, and she doesn't say, well, I, I guess. No, the woman said to the serpent, we may not eat from the trees in the garden. But, excuse me, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, she adds a little bit of law to what God spoke. She adds to it because God didn't say you can't touch it. He just said you don't eat from it. Well, that, that's fine. That's fine if Eve just draws that line and says, not only am I not going to eat from it, I'm not even going to go, I'm not even going to touch it. Okay, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but, but God didn't actually say that. So the serpent then responds, you will not surely die. He contradicts what God had said. You will not surely die. Oh, but he is crafty. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate. Now, uh, we could read on and, and discuss more about this, but I, I want us to be very focused here. Satan knew what was at stake here. He knew that if she ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was in the center of the garden, and the tree of life was also in the center of the garden, by the way, but that if they ate from that one tree that they were told not to, that, yes, their eyes would be open. They would know good from evil, but in doing so, they would sin. Satan had sinned. Before this time, Satan is speaking through this serpent. In the New Testament, Satan is called the old serpent. We recognize that this is Satan speaking through this serpent. The enemy, Satan himself knows the impact of sin on anyone's life. He himself experienced it. And he was kicked out of heaven, barred from being in the presence of God to worship him. And he has been living in darkness ever since. He knows the consequences of sin. And so he questions God and what God said. Did God really say, knowing that if Eve fell, Satan would be able to see the demise of what God had created, and actually the pinnacle mankind of his creation. He would see their demise. He would see how sin would wreak havoc in their lives. And today, church, it has. Sin has separated us from all that is life in God. And as a result, Jesus had to come and die for that sin because something had to happen to that sin. And in dying for that sin by faith, we now are given forgiveness of sins and the very righteousness of God. And we are therefore justified and made right with him in this relationship, that bridge that once that, that, that separation that once existed, that chasm that once existed, has now been bridged by the cross. So consequently, 
what's happening here is so significant. To cast doubt on what God said, to lead someone to believe, wow, you know what? Maybe God is devious. Maybe God told us not to eat from the tree of the knowledge, eat from the, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because maybe he doesn't want us to be more like him. Wow, that just doesn't seem fair. That God's withholding a lot of good from us. And Satan, so crafty, casted doubt on what God said and then the intentions of what God said. That has not changed. People throughout history have cast doubt on what God has said. When people today look at the scriptures and they say, well, science says, and it seeks to cast doubt on what scripture says, we step back and is it not right then to defend what God did say? Of course it is. And that's what Eve exactly does. But Eve gets caught up in the further temptation. Wow, maybe I can be like God. You will not surely die. Church, this is what's at stake. Yes, you will. See, it is not a small thing to look at the Bible and to doubt its truthfulness. To look at the Bible and therefore doubt its trust. Can I even, can I trust this? I'm going to suggest to you that is crucial. That is what it, that's what's at stake here. What's at stake in the, what's at stake today is what was at stake in the Garden of Eden. Because if we reject what God says, if we cast doubt on it, sin followed. It wreaked havoc in their relationship with God. When Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and now Fuller Theological Seminary, they are on their way. And, and you, can, you can do a little study on this if you want. Look at all of the founding uh, schools in the 16 and 1700s. Many of them Ivy League schools. Many of them, if not all of them, I haven't, I haven't discovered if it's all of them, but the vast majority of them were founded to honor God and they embraced the inerrancy of Scripture. And every single one of them, when they stepped away from the inerrancy of Scripture, they slid right down into liberalism. What do I mean by liberalism? It's not just, well, you know, there's some errors in the Bible. Nope. The creation account. That's an error. Adam and Eve and the fall in the garden. No, that just never really happened. That's not historically accurate. The global flood? No, come on, really? A global flood? Of course not. There's no evidence for a global flood, they say. How about the parting of the Red Sea, the exodus from Egypt? We have no archaeological evidence, they say. Of course that can't be right. Jonah being swallowed by a fish? Oh, really? Come on now. Of course that didn't happen. And over and over and over, even if Jesus affirms these events as historical events, we still say they don't happen. And if Jesus is equivocating about these things, what about Jesus' death and resurrection? Liberalism then discards them. Neo-orthodoxy, it, it, it realized where liberalism was going, tried to salvage it because liberalism was literally throwing out the Bible. It's not only not trustworthy, but it's misguided. And why these people are even teaching in seminaries this, I, 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 I don't understand that. But 
in abandoning the, the, the word of God. Therefore, the gospel has no effect. Jesus died on the cross simply as an example for you. See, Jesus died for your sins in this way, that by him denying self and willing to sacrifice, if we do that, and if we deny self, and if we seek to, uh, if we seek to deny self, then we too will sin less and less and less. See, the cross doesn't impact my sin. It's now an example, and like this life vision. Okay, if I can just be like Jesus, I will sin less. That empties the cross of its power. See, when Jesus died, our sins were placed on... Jesus suffered for my sin. And then he was raised to newness of life so that I too can have newness of life. This is, so, this is the heart of the gospel. And yet, when we abandon inerrancy, every single institution that has done this, every one of them, has, it's like a slippery slope and they slide right down into liberalism, which rejects the word of God it is not powerful. It is not authoritative. It does not speak truthfully. And it ends up completely discarding the gospel. Every single institution that has done that. So why would we embrace this idea of inerrancy? What, what is it? Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. We're just going to go through a couple of scripture verses and, and look at this a little closely. It says this, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, scripture is not just someone musing and sharing their own opinions about something, they did not speak out of their own understanding or interpretation. They spoke exactly what God said or told them to write down. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit, meaning the Spirit was guiding them. Now, was he guiding them completely or was he guiding them just some? So that their own humanness, as it entered into their writing, that their humanness allowed room for error. See, if there's error in the Bible, what gives me the right to be able to trust? What, what gives me the right to say that here's error, and here's error, and here's error? What, what, where do I draw that line? See, that's the slippery slope that all of these schools stepped on and slid right down into a rejection of the Bible, a rejection of the gospel, and a rejection of Jesus Christ. And so, when we make room for error, we begin to cast out, just like the devil did in the garden, we begin to cast out on what God said. Genesis 2, 24. You don't have to turn there, I'm going to read it to you. Genesis 2.24 says this. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. This is what Moses is, has, had written down. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. However, in Matthew 19.5, Jesus said that the Creator said this. So let's understand something. That even though Moses penned it, Jesus himself said that God said this. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This doesn't just say, you know, scripture or some scripture, but all scripture, that's in the Greek, all scripture is, in the Greek word there is theopneustos. That is translated in King James Version as inspired. In other words, it's um, <coughs> the scripture itself, <clears throat> God breathed into it. And so literally, theopneustos, me is God breathed. Understand that it is scripture that is God breathed. It is not me as I'm reading it. Karl Barth, in the early 1900s, his definition was that the Bible only contained the word of God. As a matter of fact, his definition of inspiration simply meant this. As I am reading the Bible, and the Spirit of God ministers to me in this passage. That passage for me in that moment becomes the Word of God. But we don't, we dare not say that the entire Bible is the Word of God because he, rec he believed that there were plenty of errors. Well, I'm sorry, that's so loosey-goosey. That, 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 that there's nothing definitive about that. Everybody then has an opinion. Well, this is God's word for me, and this is God's word for me. And basically, as poets are inspired today, so these prophets were inspired then, not kept from error. It is not the prophets, it is not the writers of Scripture that were inspired. It is the text itself was God-breathed. God spoke these words. And so we need to be very clear, what actually is God breathed? It's not like God is breathing or speaking through the prophet, though that's true. It is the actual words that are written down. Those are God breathed. They came from the very mouth of God. God said it. Moses wrote it down, but God said it. There's numerous scriptures that we could actually look at concerning this. Matthew 5, 18 says this. It says, I tell you the truth. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. Not the smallest letter not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. This is so clear that not only is all Scripture God-breathed, now he's get, Jesus himself is talking about the little strokes of the pen in Hebrew. 
just those little strokes that, that you know, the rough breather that begins like an R, like rhinoceros is R-H, it's, you, you have, a, a, you have a, an H sound in your R. Even that, that's in Greek. In Hebrew, you have uh, various nuances in pronunciation and in writing and yodes and, and such that those are inspired of God. Even those least little strokes of the pen. And if those are inspired, certainly entire letters are inspired and entire words are inspired. Paul himself in Galatians 3 builds an argument on whether a word is singular or plural. He says scripture is the blessing given to Abraham was given to him and to his seed, not to his seed. He builds an argument just on whether they're, in in English we would have an S on the end, whether it's singular or plural. Wow. And, and, and for, for Paul to do that, he had to have had a view of Scripture that said everything, all aspects, every word, every jot and tittle, every stroke of the pen is God-breathed because God said it, and if he said it, I can trust it. It's true. It is trustworthy. I want you to look at something here. Jesus... Before his, in the inauguration of his ministry, he is baptized by John. The Spirit descends upon him. And he then, for 40 days, is in the backside of the desert before he begins his ministry. At the end of those 40 days of fasting and praying, he is tempted by the devil. We have three temptations that are recorded. Very possible there were many other temptations, but at the end of the 40 days, these are the three that Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about. Matthew and Luke talk about Jesus in, you know, at the end of the, the tempters came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus responded this way. It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but you guys remember on every word from the mouth of God. Every word. Not some words. Every word. From the mouth of God. So, all scripture is the word of God. Not some, but all of it is. And even as I, for my physical life, depend on bread and, okay, Jesus could have talked about meat and so on and so forth. We could have talked about water and the significance and importance of water. Today we talk about a great balanced diet, and that gives you physical life. Even so, we receive life, spiritual life, from God through his word. Jesus, this is so important for Jesus. Man doesn't live by bread alone. In other words, I just don't live a physical life because I'm also a spiritual being, and consequently, I need the word of God. Church, you need the word of God. The devil knew this, and in the garden, he cast doubt on that. Did God really say? So church, this is a big deal. When science, okay, scientists, say, and what they say contradicts the word of God, we need to look at that. 
Right now on Wednesdays, last week, this week, we're looking at the age of the earth. Is that even significant? Um, we're finding that there are some who seek to interpret scripture using the word day and so on very differently. But, but Jesus believed in a young earth. And there's numerous passages that we, we can look at to, to see that. Doubt is cast on the global flood. Well, they say there's just no evidence of it. Well, we're standing on about one mile of it. But see, they say, well, no, that accumulated over hundreds of millions of years. And so scientists today, Christian scientists today say, hang on a second. The text is very clear that it was global. It wasn't just local. It was global. And if it was, let's step back and let's look at this sci the science behind this. Do, does the geologic column uh, comprise hundreds, about 550 million years? There's far too much evidence that suggests otherwise that we could get into right now. I mean, I don't have time, but we're, we're going to do that this coming Wednesday. What is that science? Is it arrogant for us to look into this? Is it arrogant for us to challenge scientists today on this? I would say no. I, th I think we're obligated. I, I preached a sermon series some time ago on the Exodus. I think I entitled it uh, something about redemption. And just this concept of the Exodus coming out of Egypt. And then we looked at the parting of the Red Sea and how people in our day, according to Egyptologists or archaeology, they would say, well, obviously the Exodus didn't happen. We don't find any archaeological evidence. Because when they're, when they're looking at the city of Ramses, there's no evidence of slavery, etc., etc. And lo and behold, we begin to wonder, well, maybe you're looking in the wrong place. Because the city, as they're uh, digging into the city of Ramses and uncovering it, they're digging into a portion of it that used to be called Avaris. And there, they are finding evidence of slavery, they are finding tremendous amounts of evidence that would support an exodus and about two million Hebrew slaves living in Egypt. And as they're piecing the puzzle pieces together, many of them are realizing there's something wrong with how we're doing science or Egyptology or archaeology in Egypt. There's something wrong with the dating. And to, whether you're aware of it or not, most of our dates come from one man, a man by the name of Manetho, a Greek historian. And I'm just going to suggest there is something wrong with how we're doing this science. And it's not just Christians who are asking these questions. Even atheists are asking these questions. Something is wrong here. So I'm going to suggest to you that the final word on the Exodus and the parting of the Red Sea is not in when it comes to science. We're discovering, and, and I think we need to delve into this where we're discovering there is something wrong with how science is done today. I'm going to suggest that any time that we come across science says and it contradicts the Bible, I'm going to suggest there is something wrong with how that science is being done. In Leviticus 11.6, it says that the rabbit chews the cud, but it does not have a cloven foot, so therefore it is unclean. And people stepped back and said, wait a second. See, Moses was wrong there. Just another example of the Bible being an error. 
And there's, there's many that have, you know, apparent contradictions that have come up over the years. This is one of them. And they said, the rabbit doesn't chew his cud. He, he chews his mouth like this, but he doesn't chew his cud. In other words, he doesn't eat something, swallow it, regurgitate it, and eat it again. He doesn't do that. We call that remuneration. He doesn't do that. But what, you, what happens is when you look at that Hebrew word, it actually means to scrape the throat again. In other words, to swallow it again. That the rabbit does this. And people were saying, no, he doesn't. But see, what does happen is that the rabbit, after he eats and digests his food, he, he has two types of pellets that he eliminates. He has a brown pellet and he has a green pellet. And rabbits do re-eat those green pellets. And so for a second time, it, he does chew it and digest it. So he does fall into this category, maybe not of a ruminant, but of one who chews his food again. Sorry, that may have come across a bit disgusting. I didn't mean for it to. But the truth is that Moses was not wrong. Now, we could look at a number, a number of examples. We could look at the example in Hebrews 9.4. Forgive me if I, I, I don't turn to this verse just to keep things a little bit short. But in, in Hebrews 9.4, it says that the altar of incense is found in the, holy, in the most holy place. Well, the way the Greek reads there is that not that it's located in the Holy of Holies, but that in discussing the Holy of Holies, the altar of incense belongs to it. Now, if you read in the Hebrew, in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 22, as Solomon is building the temple... He records it this way, that the altar of incense, and it's just one letter, leh, that's attached to the noun. The altar of incense belonged to the Holy of Holies. Not that it was actually located in there, but that it was, it belonged to it. The altar of incense was a symbol of prayer. And we can see this in Revelation 5. It's a symbol of prayer as the incense rises to God, and as the the priest, high priest, once a year would take incense from the altar of incense, and he would go behind the curtain or the wall, the partition, and that smoke would fill the room, and that was necessary so that he would not look upon the glory of God. And the altar of incense was right there in front of the curtain. Yes, it did belong to the Holy of Holies, but technically it's located in the holy place. There's the holy place and then the curtain and then the most holy place or the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of God is. That's where God was said to dwell in his glory. Well, the altar of incense was right up against that curtain. And for the high priest to go into that most holy place, he needed that incense. And in this, because it represented prayer. Hebrews, the very passage that I'm referring to, it says Hebrews 9, 4, that it, that it was in the, or belonged to the uh, 
whole, the most holy place. Just a few chapters earlier, chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4. We approach the throne of grace, which in the Old Testament would have been the Ark of the Covenant. We approach the throne of grace seeking God's mercy in prayer. So in the new covenant, with the veil of the temple torn, we are in our prayers, we are right there in the presence of God seeking him. So it is absolutely appropriate for the book of Hebrews to talk about it, however you want to say it, belonging to or in the most holy place. They belong to each other. You could not separate them because now it was the veil of the temple was torn. And so he's giving us now a view of the new covenant and our relationship with God through Jesus Christ as now we can pray in Jesus' name, in the very presence of God, before his throne of grace. And so there's so much beauty in this, and yet people want, oh, no, that's an error. See, it's technically not in the most holy place. Mm. So why is all of this important? Obviously, we could go, we could look at a hundred discrepancies. I'm almost tempted to get into a few more, but I'm running out of time. But I want to just say this. What's the big deal? Why is this so important? See, if science, like archaeology, doesn't support the exodus or the parting of the Red Sea, and so we conclude these are just fables, you know, non-historical events that have a moral point to them or a religious or theological point to them. What do we do with what science today supposedly says concerning the bodily resurrection of Jesus? Because resurrections can't happen, not in nature. I'm not saying that, that, that miracles and God can't do it, but science says that this should not be able to happen, but it did. Do we conclude that he must not therefore have risen from the dead because science says? Matthew 7, 26. But everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a foolish, and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. What words in the Bible are we going to choose to build our life on? Just some of them? That is those that apparently science doesn't contradict? I have yet to come across, in my personal study of what science has to say about I have yet to find a place where it truly does contradict. Not one. How about when Jesus says that he's the only way? Are we going to toss that one out? When he condemns male-female marriages only. When he commends Male-female marriages only. Do we just toss that one out in view of the LGBTQ and what it's trying to say to our culture today? When he condemns all forms of sexual immorality and divorce except for sexual immorality alone, do we, do we throw that out as well? I would suggest that there is no end to what we do with Scripture when we start asking, did God really say? You may remember... Adam's testimony yesterday. Adam was a drug addict. He was an alcoholic. And because of this, it had ruined his life. 
just absolutely ruined his life. He, it, it created tremendous division between he and his mother. His mother could not trust him and basically stepped away from Adam's life. Two years ago, a little bit more, Adam had the gospel proclaimed to him so very clearly by Pastor Arthur Goncalves from Restoration Church as they were ministering to the homeless there in downtown Stanford. And Adam came to this realization that what Jesus has to say, all of it, he needed to build his life on because right now it, it was as if it had just been flushed down the toilet because of addiction. But scripture speaks clearly about addiction. Get rid of them. Turn to Christ. Let him break those chains from you. And as he, be, as he stepped into that relationship with Jesus, not only was his sin forgiven, God began to break these chains in his life. He was no longer addicted to, to drugs, and he went through a, a recovery program. He was no longer addicted to alcohol. He began to lean in more and more to Jesus Christ, trusting his very life to this person, Jesus Christ, and everything that he said. What he didn't share in his testimony, though, because he didn't have time, was that his mother heard about this transformation, actually moved to Sanford down the road from him, and their relationship has been completely restored. Why? Because Adam believed in Jesus Christ and that every word that Jesus spoke, every word that God spoke, he now needed to live his life accordingly. Because we don't live by bread alone, but we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that totally transformed his life. Church, what God says is absolutely powerful. Life-transforming. When Jesus was in the desert and he actually quoted this passage, he used scripture. He used what God said against what the devil said, and that is how he became victorious. He didn't quote scientists or philosophers. Philosophers probably would have been more in, in the liking in his day and, and choose Aristotle or Plato or some other Socrates or someone else. He didn't quote them. He quoted what God said. Why? Because it is the word of God that has power to change and transform and set people free and break chains. It is God's word that we are called to live our life on. Because if we don't, it's like building your house upon what? Sand. And when the storms come, that house will crash with a great crash. I'm choosing to build my life on what God says. Every educational institution that has doubted that and cast aside inerrancy and cast doubt on the trustful, trustworthiness of Scripture, they all have become liberal. They've all thrown out the gospel. They all have, been, have moved away from the Word of God to the point where Harvard itself, the school that I, to my understanding, is the oldest institution in America, 30, about 38% of them are atheists. But only about 10% in America. Something happens when we abandon the Word of God. 
Church, can you stand with me? I want to encourage you this morning. You know, maybe you're kind of sorting through some things that we're even talking about this morning. Maybe it has influenced you to the point where you're wondering, can I really trust God's word? Does it really speak to my life? Is it really that powerful? And I'm going to tell you that it is. Lean into the word. Build your life on God's, God's word. It will change you. And today, I'm just going to encourage you, if you have not been spending time in the Word, can I encourage you to do that? Because that is the only way you're going to be like that tree planted by streams of water. Produce fruit in season, out of season. Your leaf also will not wither. Whatever you do will prosper. That's God's promise concerning His Word. The man that looks to His Word and builds his life on it. Every word of God. Father, I just thank you for the power of your word. We live in a day in which Satan continues in his clever little ways to ask that question, did God really say? And I just ask you, Lord, help us to cling to every word that comes from your mouth, to trust every word. And Father, I, I ask you, Lord, that as, as we cling to your word, show yourself to be faithful. Show your promises to be true. And I ask you, Lord, empower us as your people to be like that tree planted by streams of water, to look to you, Father, when the, when the storm is raging, to trust in your word and to look to you and to not listen to the enemy. Did God really say? And I'm asking you, Lord, as we trust you, would you deliver us? Would you open doors? Would you shut the enemy out? Would you allow us to walk in victory and not defeat as we trust our very lives into your hands on your word? Thank you, Father. Would you just encourage us with this word today, God, and take it and seal it in our hearts as we pursue you with all of our hearts. In Christ's name I pray, amen.